hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of O2 and You. I'm your host, David Garbett, and uh, excited to come to you this week with a topic that um, I think a lot about and I'm excited about jumping into. My guest today, Mariana Mancuso, is um, she wears many different hats, longtime politico, strategist, analyst. Um, in particular, today we'll be talking about uh, some of her work um, with a group called Republic EN. If you if you read it out, like Republican, um, she is part of uh, leadership council at this organization. Um, side note for those of you here in Utah, Nick Huey, uh, also Utah, and is part of this leadership council. Basically, an organization trying to make a difference on climate. Uh, by engaging Republicans, making the conservative case for climate action. Um, so, Mariana, welcome to the program. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, David. Really, the pleasure's all mine, to be honest. I never tire about talking about climate crisis and how we can find solutions and bridge gap between partisan gridlock when it comes to talking about these problems. Thank you so much for coming here. I was I was warning Mariana before we started that um, she might have to do some live therapy with me as I work through some of my thoughts and conundrums on this topic. And we discussed how part of what uh, O2 Utah is trying to do here in Utah is to get climate action and to work with our legislature, among other entities, to to see Utah move forward on this. And in Utah, that means we have to work with Republicans. And our model is all about engaging in elections, developing relationships with policymakers, and then giving policy prescriptions to, to elected officials to act on. So, so excited to have you here, Mariana. But maybe why don't we kick it off? I would be just interested in hearing why personally is this important to you? What got you um, interested in, in working on climate? Well, I'm a Floridian. Um, I'm currently displaced in New York City, but as a Floridian, I can tell you that seeing climate change happen in real time in Florida was just astounding to me. And the fact that people weren't doing more and we weren't more alarmed was equally surprising if I'm being quite candid, you know. I remember that, you know, watching just kind of the beach erosion happen in what seemed like overnight, but it took years for it to happen, but seeing that progression and also rec recognizing the impact it was having on the tourist industry in Florida because people would come to visit and the beaches were closed. Then just seeing people that lived there year round were experiencing red algae blooms in their backyard and having to be concerned about that. And so it was just, it became a very, I would say number one issue for me that I was really concerned about because look, I will tell you that Florida is the greatest state in the uh -huh. union and it's by far my favorite. Uh, I know you'll probably have some disagreement with that, but it's okay. Um, and so the point is, is I wanna keep Florida beautiful for everybody as well as the rest of the country and the entire globe because at the end of the day, there is no planet B. And I know that sounds so trite and ridiculous, but it's true. It's always my favorite sign at uh, climate rallies. There's no planet B. I interest, you know, Mariana, I grew up here in Utah and grew up in an area that was politically conservative for the most part, conservative neighborhood. And I remember thinking about issues related to the environment or to the climate and realizing, hey, I'm alarmed, I'm concerned, I don't feel like all of my neighbors are. And that did 
for me, at least personally, that was a little bit of, I think there was a little bit of struggle coming to terms with, hey, I think this is really important, but not wanting to kind of depart from what, you know, I guess the, the topics or the zeitgeist of that conservative area that I was in. Was that an issue for you? Or did you feel like you were surrounded by other people that were saying, hey, yeah, we should be doing something about climate. This is a threat to our state. I think that there are there are portions of people that I found myself with that didn't seem to think that it was like the top issue, especially in elections, which to me, I've made the case that it, it should be because really that issue ties in everything else. Like we have a problem with immigration. Well, no kidding. That begins with climate crisis because people are becoming displaced due to rising temperatures. And so, you know, there's pockets of that. But then I will say. And, and I'm sure that your listeners will have a lot of things to say after I say this, which is great. I love the comments and I love the engagement, but I will say that when Ron DeSantis took office as governor in Florida, there was an opportunity for him to be Florida's Teddy Roosevelt and really care about the environment. And so I think that there was that opportunity that really reignited that spark of that, hey, we can solve climate, climate crisis in Florida. And then just seeing what it was doing around the rest of the world was really impactful because it's impacting everybody. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting one. I actually, I want to come back to this Ron DeSantis comment that you made, because I, I mean, it's part of the way that I think about how are we going to get, you know, adequate political support to take action on climate. Clearly we have to engage Republicans. Right. Um, before we do that though, I also want to understand how you got your, why you were interested in how you got your start in Republican politics. You've had a pretty prolific career. Thank you. Uh, so what, what was it that drew you to that? Well, so, you know, it's funny because the, the joke in my family was that um, originally I was going to go to law school and I went to, I went to college. I was on the track. I was just about there. And then I took a gap year and my, I was just telling the st story the other day to one of my friends, my older brother came to me. I went to see him for spring break and he was concerned at this gap year that I had to pick a career and I needed to find the path that would really do well for me. And he suggested I become a pharmacist. He's like, you know, healthcare is really at a turning point. Everybody will always need prescriptions. This would be really great. So I came back and I sat down and I started looking at everything. And I found out that the college I was looking at for grad school had a master's program in political science. I met with the chair of the department a couple of weeks later and was enrolled that fall. And then when I was studying, I wound up getting an opportunity to go work with a major news network during the 2008 presidential election. And they sent me to both conventions and seeing democracy happen in real time and be part of that fervor of Americana and be part of the history books in that way was something I didn't want to let go of. And the Republicans were so good to me um, until they decided to abandon their principles and we had to part ways. But you know what? It's okay. Eventually they'll be able to reclaim their soul. I'm confident of it. <laughs> I hope so. We need it. Um, what, but what was it specifically that pulled you to Republicans? Um, as you said, you were you know, leaving school and getting engaged politically. Um, why Republicans over Democrats or, you know, well, I can, you know, I can assure you that my third party. Yeah, no, my grad school professors didn't actually understand how I came out of their program as a conservative and a Republican. Mm. Um, but, you know, the jokes aside, I wound up being drawn to the Republican Party because I stood for conservative values, family values, and I wanted to, you know, I was fiscally conservative, which is super important. I believe in small, limited government. 
And when we talk about climate crisis, there became this disconnect because Republicans want to conserve everything. They're super conservative by nature. That's the party ethos. At least it was when I was part of the Republican Party. Unfortunately, when it comes to climate crisis, there's this I don't know what happens. They, they just diverge into two paths, right? Because Republicans forget in that moment that they're a conservative party. And as a conservative party and wanting to conserve things, you want to conserve the earth. You want to do everything you can to protect it, but Republicans don't like it because nowadays in 22, it's not sexy. It's not flashy to talk about the fact that the earth might not be livable by 2050. Yeah, I mean, that certainly resonates for me because yeah, I, 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 you look at key values that I think, again, speaking maybe more of Republicans before some of the tumult of the last five or six years, key values that members of the party have espoused and that I think they believe in, they seem to mesh well with the idea of taking action on climate. Mm -hmm. uh, but for some reason, we are getting that dissonance. And let's talk a little bit about that. Um, why is it? Why is, that <laughs> why, why is this happening? Yeah. You know, I, I wish I had like the answer. I wish I had this silver bullet answer that people could glom onto and say, we can change this and we can make things different. But unfortunately, it's just, we haven't, we don't know what that one answer is, right? It's, it's that why that as humans by nature, we want to know the why. It, oftentimes people are looking for answers for everything from, you know, the pandemic to, you know, why is it that conspiracy theorists are running amok online to even, you know, how are we going to solve this? And when we look for that why, it kind of detracts from us figuring out the how, which the component is how do we fix this? And I think that, you know, today's approach when it comes to programs and tax credits and incentivizing clean energy, it's better than nothing, right? And, but at the same time, what's truly missing is this comprehensive economy-wide climate change strategy. And I think that there's a real opportunity for both parties to meet in the middle and find that way. Yeah, um, it, again, so much to, to build off on that. I, you know, part of what I can't help but wonder with, uh, the direction we see, and I wanna be specific here, elected Republican officials in Congress um, or lack of direction, lack of action, specifically with that group. Um, you know, it's all, at, at this point, I feel like a lot of it's just about theory and you know, what theory is right, I don't know. I can't help but wonder about the important role of two things. One is just kind of inertia. You know, if you are an elected official, I think describing charitably or maybe accurately, you have so much on your plate. There are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of issues under the sun. And I think if I were in their shoes and I would only feel proficient in maybe three or four of them, I feel mm -hmm. like I would be able to navigate those. All of the rest, I'd probably look to people I trusted. Mm -hmm. and, and others to try and understand those better or just to define a position. And for some reason, that dominant position in the party has become, don't pay any heed, don't pay attention to this issue. And um, I think that probably describes, especially a lot of Republicans, older Republicans as voters, um, not younger Republicans, and let's make sure to talk about that. But uh, so there's this inertia, and then it also seems like a big part of it is elections and how it is that candidates um, are funded. 
and the importance of, um, you know, it, it was a real eye-opener to me. I ran for office uh, here in Utah, how critical raising money is to getting elected. And I just don't think people, if you haven't been through the experience, you just don't understand. And especially if you're a member of Congress, I mean, so many of these members of Congress probably spend all day, every day for a year or two on the phone trying to raise money. And some of the key funders uh, of races are entities, you know, PolySci 101, the concentrated interests that benefit from, in this case, inaction, mm -hmm. help fund campaigns and say, you don't need to do anything, it's okay. You know, or if you did, it would ruin our economy. Um, it's part of what we're doing here at O2 is to try and step in and, and address that leverage point. But to me, those are kind of two of the key things for specifically inaction in Congress. Um, what do you think? Well, I think the cool thing, and look, I can definitely like come down harshly on the Republicans and the Democrats. I'm equal opportunity when it comes to political parties and what they're doing wrong. But I'm also one of the first people to stand up and applaud when they're doing things right. And I think that when we look at the Republicans, interestingly enough, over the years, we've started to see a shift in that denying climate change is no longer this mainstream Republican talking point. And I have to just pause and give kudos to Representative John Curtis, who did found in 2021, the Conservative Climate Caucus. And this is actually really interesting. And the reason it's interesting is because it creates a safe space for new basically those new to the issue to become engaged and to learn more. And as a result, we have more than 70 members that have joined this caucus. And while many are not your usual suspects, we have to give them the benefit of the doubt that they want to get good on this and figure out how to solve this existential crisis of a generation. So there is an opportunity that Republicans are trying to make good on and we're seeing a slow shift. The problem is, is that I think you and I can agree that they're not moving fast enough, right? We're, we saw that Biden had a climate agenda when he came into office and it's starting to kind of become a bit languished, right? It's not moving very quickly. It's kind of stalled. We're seeing just, we're just wondering, can he get this done? And I think that, you know, if Republicans wanted to move the ball down the field faster, then there would be an opportunity. But in order to do that, they have to come to the table to talk with Democrats, which is that bipartisan spirit, which I'm a huge proponent of, and find solutions because the end result is policy that's more durable because it's been supported by both sides and durability is so critical for an issue like climate change, as you know. Yeah, what, how could we, tying this back to your, your point about Ron DeSantis, I mean, one thing that I've, just as a thought of exercise with people said, like, imagine if Donald Trump at some point had come out and said to people, America's gonna be number one on the clean energy revolution. We're gonna be number one. This is the way we're going. We can't lose to China, you know, talked about it in his terms. Mm -hmm. I am hard pressed to believe that there would be any pushback. I mean, I imagine like the next day, Fox News would have continuous coverage saying like, America's gonna be number one, we're gonna attack climate. And, you know, I'd be there like, whoa, that was a quick shift, but all right, great. I'm glad you're, you know, you're on board. I just don't see any pushback, which, I mean, you could tell me if you agree or not. To me, that says, you know, a lot of this is how can we get elected officials to be more comfortable driving this conversation? Because it seems like at least a key part of Republican voters, I feel like would give them latitude. There's certainly a big part of the Republican Party that wants to see action. There's another part that says like, sure, you tell me we need to do it. I'm okay, but I'm looking to you for my cues on this. Right. 
And I think to your point, the way that begins is it begins with messaging to the voters and creating an urgency for them to make it relevant. Right. So one of the things that we know that voters turn out on elections that they care most about are the pocketbook issues. And I'm telling you right now, I'm not sure about Utah, but I can assure you that in parts of Florida and Michigan and other parts around the country, people are feeling the squeeze of the gas pump. And it's it's gotten so out of hand that the RNC is now doing voter registration drives at the gas stations because people are so like hurting by the fact that it's costing them so much to fill up their trucks and their SUVs and all of these other vehicles that they're out there driving. Now, when I talk about messaging to voters and making it relevant to them and to their family, they have to, the first point is making the case of the fact that every American, regardless of where they live, are experiencing climate change in some capacity, whether they realize it or not. So 80% of us have experienced the heat wave in 2021, right? So living in, in Florida during the summer of 2021, it was hot, but it's always hot in Florida. However, I'm sure some of our friends in Utah were experiencing the heat wave. And you know, when we think about that, we also recognize that 40% of Americans who are living along our coasts, Eastern seaboard, west, west coast of the United States, they are recognizing that the sea level is in fact rising. There's beach erosion, which I talked about, sunny days, there's flooding in places. I mean, you know, in Miami, it's a common occurrence. And at this point, if people wanna buy beachfront property in Miami, I'm encouraging them to look at Kansas City because it's only a matter of time before Florida's underwater. And I, I say that partly in jest, but there is some truth to it. And so we have to recognize that this is impacting us all, even if we're not living along the coasts of the country, but we're living inland, Utah, we're living in Colorado, everybody is impacted and it has, it has to have a conversation shift of how that impacts you. Marianne, how on messaging, you know, one thing I've found challenging in talking to people of any party on this is the framing is dire and, and it's hard to get them to see some of the opportunity. These things that you've brought up about cost, you know, I think most voters on the left or right don't understand that today in America, generally the cheapest form of electricity is renewable. Mm -hmm. And the other great thing about that is, you know, that's really been driven home by some of the instability internationally is that so often renewables and carbon-free electricity is about kind of you make all your payments up front and it's just a mortgage payment. You know, you buy those panels, you buy that windmill, the geothermal uh, facility, but that's not people's expectation. They, they see it more as a luxury good, like, hey, like a Tesla. Oh, that'd be cool, but I can't afford it. As opposed to, no, you can afford it. Um, in fact, I think actually Republicans have a more optimistic message on this front in that one of the biggest reasons why we're not seeing the proliferation of clean energy across the country, I think, is that typically electricity is not a functioning, it's not a functioning market. It's often dominated by monopolies or there's some issue that prevent a functioning market from happening. If we had a functioning market, I think we'd see much higher proportions of, of clean energy. How do you get over that hurdle that you're coming to an issue where people just, it's almost like you're telling them something too good to be true? Yeah, you know, I think that's kind of the thing is, is creating this mainstream thing. I, I love how you say that solar panels and a Tesla seem like these luxury items when they don't have to be, right? And so as people start, you know, filling up their gas, their gas um, 
tanks at the gas station and they're seeing like the just the number tick up. I mean, I remember I used to live in Hawaii for a very short period of time and it was around the 2010 era and gas prices were through the roof again and people were losing their minds. And I'm like, I'm paying $5 a gallon on this island right now, you know, and people, my you know, friends in New York and Virginia are paying like $4 and they're losing their minds. And now today we're seeing that the gas prices are actually exceeding those limits back in 2008 to 2010. And so I think it is creating a conversation that owning a Tesla, owning an electric vehicle is not a luxury item, but it's a great alternative. And it keeps you away from having to go to the gas station and pay exorbitant amount of prices when it comes to filling up your tank. So you just wrote a piece about uh, what is happening in Ukraine and Russia and with uh, energy markets um, that I assume is related to this. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'm making the case that there's an opportunity to create an energy independent America, right? So we've seen that this response to to Russia invading Ukraine has obviously has brought the, the entire global community together and, and Russia's being ostracized, which is really interesting because I'm willing to bet that Vladimir Putin didn't anticipate that. But when we banned all Russian energy imports, coal, gas, and oil, now, it's important to note here that Russian oil only accounts for 3% of US imports and that the sanctions are gonna make it harder for Russia to export oil, um, which will then make it harder for Putin to finance his you know, brutal attack on Ukraine. But there's an opportunity here for, especially as we head into the midterms, for the United States to invest in electricity sector and become energy independent. And I think that this is such a great opportunity because as we've seen that, you know, a lot of reason that Biden is in the White House is because of those Biden Republicans. And there's an opportunity here for Biden to bridge the divide between Republicans and Democrats and bring them both together by doing this. And there's never been a better time for us to assert our independence from the grips of oil oligarchs, 100%. I think that this is the chance. Unfortunately, as I state in my article, the Biden administration is falling short by sending a delegation to Caracas and Venezuela to have talks with the regime down there, to Saudi Arabia to have talks over there. And so he's really looking for alternatives when he has the best option here at home, which is to actually create an energy independent country. Here, here. Yeah, I hear you. You know, it's actually George Will wrote about this recently that Democrats. Uh, and again, I think talking about specifically members of Congress say that climate change is rightfully an issue that should be addressed, rightfully an existential crisis. But the moment energy prices go up, they all jettison that. And I think he was right. Like, hey, good for you, George Will, for calling that out. Um, because it is, you know, it is an opportunity to go quickly in a direction that I think everybody realizes we need to go. Um, and a, a place for leadership, even if there's some flack at the get-go. Yeah, um, absolutely. Like Americans are just, they're fatigued by all of this. It's the pandemic, they're tired, just everything. America is just tired. And there's such an opportunity here to bring us together, to do something, you know, to get rid of the old outdated rally cry of drill, baby, drill, and, you know, increase renewable energy. And I really hope that the Biden administration takes this opportunity because I've not seen a better chance, to be honest with you. So, Mariana, for a second, imagine you were here in Utah, and I think in particular talking to our Republican members of the legislature who are from, um, who are the urban, suburban uh, Republicans here 
who I think probably, you know, fit into the camp of, it's not an issue that they're particularly passionate about, hot or cold, you know, they don't, they're probably vaguely aware that the science is pretty settled and probably something should be done, but their colleagues aren't. And, you know, it's only the crazy Dems and they're just a few here that want to. Um, why should they care? Why should they do something here in Utah? Because it affects everybody, right? Like this is something that you can bring everyone together and it doesn't matter. Climate change doesn't care if you're Republican, if you're Democrat, if you voted independent, if you voted Bernie Sanders. At the end of the day, climate change doesn't care about anyone. And we have to figure out how to solve that problem because at the after, after all is said and done, if the politicians in Utah really enjoy going to the state capitol and having their legislative sessions at their desks and voting on the floor, now's the chance because I'm telling you, if, they, if we keep this up, eventually all this is gonna be underwater and it's not gonna matter, right? The issues that they're passionate about, the things they're doing for their constituents, None of that is going to matter if we don't solve climate crisis today. And I want to just jump off of that and talk about how do they bring this to the constituents again, making everyday people care about climate change, because look, I'm not sure about you, but I can tell you here in New York City, it's a requirement that we recycle. I can also tell you, which is a whole nother podcast for a separate day about how recycles don't actually make it through the entire recycling facility. And it's kind of, you know, people become fatigued with having to sort their paper and their plastic. Nevertheless, if we have other alternatives and we find other ways that may cost a little bit on the front end, but can actually save the earth in the long run, you have a real opportunity and you create that issue for a family of four and how do we make that matter to them? Well, if you're going to the grocery store and you have an opportunity to buy something that isn't in plastic, not only are you concerned about the health of your family, but now you're doing good for Utah and your community. So this is beyond just politics. It's beyond the individual, it's the community, and we have an ability to do better. And I think that that's really the chance that we have to take right now. Let's stay on this theme. I think if we had that conversation with these legislators, there'd probably be kind of two responses, and I'm interested in hearing your take on it. One would be, I'm not hearing it from my constituents. And probably what they mean more specifically is I'm not hearing it from Republican delegates or Republican primary voters specifically because the, they're finally attuned to that group. Um, and then I think maybe the second would be, uh, I'm worried that addressing your issue means that um, maybe they wouldn't phrase it this way, but there's some discomfort and struggle with an implicit acknowledgement that this requires government action. What would you say on those two things? Well, I think it kind of all comes together. And the first thing I would say is that while you're not hearing it from the delegates or the primary voters, I'm pretty sure that they're not pleased about the money that they've had to pay. In 2021, we saw 20 natural disasters across the country and it cost 1 billion, actually over a billion dollars in damages. That's a lot. To think that we could prevent that is pretty impressive. I'm not saying we can prevent every natural disaster, but what I'm saying is that we have an opportunity. And when you talk to Republican voters, what do they care about? They care about fiscal conservatism and they don't wanna have to spend more than they have to. There's an opportunity here and you have to talk to them where, they, where they're gonna hear you and they're gonna hear you when you talk about the economy. Yeah, and so um, do you have kind of what, what would be a concrete example? Would it just be gas prices to help them see that pursuing action on climate helps them to address 
the day-to-day -day issues their constituents are facing? Well, if I had to pick one place to start with this entire conversation, I would suggest a revenue neutral border adjustable carbon tax. I think that that's kind of the place to start, right? And I know that we hear taxes and people are like, oh my gosh, but there's a real opportunity for us to, again, drive home fiscal conservatism while solving a climate crisis. But again, if you don't have buy-in that climate crisis is a problem and that we should be concerned about it because 2050 isn't that far off. And that, I mean, if that doesn't blow your mind, I'm not sure what else will, David, because honestly, I can't, I can tell you that growing up the thought of 2050, it seems so far away, but mm -hmm. it's really not. It's literally 28 years from now. No. Um, <laughs> it's scary so when I put it like that, huh? You're like, oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, so here's the part, and I warned you, like I wanted to work through some of my own struggles on this front. Let's do it. Um, guess where to start on this. I, I guess one thing that's surprising to me, and this isn't so much a doubt, just more an observation, I'd love your thoughts on this, is you know, there are some Republicans in Congress now, and, and you pointed out John Curtis, you know, we've got Mitt Romney. Actually, I would say uh, somehow remarkably, the Utah delegation is probably the state delegation of Republicans most willing to talk about climate. Um, now we need to come back to that because I'm not seeing a lot of action from them, but <laughs> of, of Republican delegations, somehow um, we've got a cadre of Republicans who mostly want to see action. Um, how is it that a carbon tax became kosher to talk about in Republican circles? I mean, that one's still all for it. Hey, great. Let's implement it. But it just seems a little strange that it's a tax that's okay to talk about. Why is that? What am I misunderstanding? Well, as I mentioned, you know, we saw over 20 natural disasters in 2021. That was just a year ago. And the fact of the matter is, is we cannot afford to implement a policy like carbon tax. So if we do nothing, it's only going to get worse. And this is the opportunity, again, to have that solution. I think that's the thing is people hear climate change in the 90s, it was global warming, and now it's climate change. They're all just fun marketing buzzwords. But the truth is, this is a crisis, and this is an existential one, and we have to find a solution. And I can say this until I'm blue in the face, but until we start making action and moving the needle on this, it's just going to be me standing on a soapbox begging for people to do something a little bit different. So, but you're not alone. And from all the polling I've seen, especially if we're talking about 30-year-olds, 20-year-olds, um, usually Republicans don't look any different in, um, you know, questions about, is it a crisis? Where are you on the, you know, is the science, what do you think about the science? Um, clearly young Republicans want action on this. Why are we seeing that translate into to the elected officials? It's going to take time, right? The first thing we do with the young Republicans that are concerned about climate change is you get them to start writing to their elected representatives. And, you know, I will tell you that. I, so I actually let me backtrack a little. I got involved with the organization Republican years ago. A good friend of mine reached out and he was working with them. I was the president of the Palm Beach um, Young Republicans Club. And he said, I'd like to host an event with you guys. And so I was like, sure, come on down, come down to South Florida and let's do this event. And I was blown away by the organization. And I was like, totally like bought in that day. And I've been with them ever since. Now, 
what we saw is that we created an ability for young Republicans to feel like they could actually reach out to their elected representatives, because oftentimes people think that they don't have access to their elected officials or, you know, my vote doesn't count. No, your vote doesn't count if you don't show up and vote. <laughs> so let's be clear about that. And so getting people to then start looking for those candidates, because we're seeing a total shift in the country in general on how the the younger generation is voting, they're voting issues, not party lines, which is fantastic because if we can get more issue voters voting for candidates that support finding solutions to climate change, then we can affect real change in Washington. However, the way that we do that is we first start with electing people that are local in local races, state legislatures, people that are seeing this in their own backyard and they wanna fix it and make a change because then you gain political influence and you have the ability to create a lasting legacy and eventually end up in Washington to make those dynamic changes. And that's how it begins, it's the slow drip. Look, this is not a sprint. We will not sprint to the finish of 2022 and solve all of these problems. In tonight's conversation, I can assure you, we're not gonna find the solutions. However, it's a starting point and the more times we have these conversations and we have them publicly and we share them with our friends and family and our community and everyone we meet, the more it begins to build that momentum and that momentum can build an entire revolution of people who are ready to find solutions and will not accept anything less. How do we get, um, let's go back to the Utah delegation. You mentioned John Curtis. Um, you know, in the past, I've been very appreciative of the fact that John Curtis is out there saying, you know, the science is really settled. And he'll say, you know, Republicans, we need to pull our heads out of the sand. It, it's true. Well, it's I a real like, answer. Don't worry, David. Eventually they will. Well, <laughs> I feel like anytime he talks about it, though, nowadays, you know, in a 30 minute speech, it's five minutes saying that. And then the next 25 minutes, um, I guess making sure that he's not rejected from, you know, his peer group, because it's like 25 minutes criticizing Democrats and saying like, you know, this is their religion or they want to destroy our economy. And I mean, I'm thoroughly unpersuaded. I don't love it. And, you know, setting aside any offense that I might take, the thing I feel like I'm straining to hear from him is, okay, Representative Curtis, if you acknowledge that science is true, I think like you've laid out, Mariana, it's a crisis and we need action. What I'm not seeing from you, you're criticizing Democrats, but you're not stepping up with the alternative that actually recognizes that it is a crisis and says, okay, here are the solutions. Now it's from my different vantage point. I haven't seen that from him. I feel like I don't see that from many elected Republicans who are talking about climate what, you know, am I missing it? Or, or how do we get there with someone like a John Curtis? How do we get into that second part? Well, I so I think that the first step was getting Republicans to admit that they are adhering to the science on climate change. That's, that's step one, believe mm -hmm. the science in all things. Let me just put that there. Um, also with, you know, Representative John Curtis, when he founded the Conservative Climate Caucus last year, that was a very big step. And like I said, there's over 70 members. It is not just the usual suspects and it provides a cover. And I think that that is where we have to start. And as I've mentioned this marathon, which look as Americans, we want instant gratification, you know, 
people want to go on a three mile run and drop 10 pounds all in the same day. And that's just not the reality of this. We have to start somewhere. And this begins with the climate caucus, with them finding solutions, getting smart legislative aides to help them craft key policy. And I will say, that this is not just, it's not just climate change that Republicans are guilty of not having a policy to put in place, right? We saw this with, you know, Obamacare, Affordable Care Act. They stumped for years about how they had to repeal and replace. And when they finally caught the car, like the dog chasing the car down the street, they didn't have a policy in place. And so I think that there's an opportunity from the, for redemption, but they have to create the policy. And that begins within the climate caucus among the conservatives trying to find that, that policy solution that will work. And I hope in the coming years that we can see that sooner rather than later. Yeah. I mean, if it were me, if John Curtis were listening to me and said, look, you've got a great opportunity. It, it's almost like you're still, every time you stick your foot out a little bit farther, you get out a little bit farther, you're, you're nervous that the world's gonna end and it hasn't. And nobody, and you've been fine this whole time. You've got a great opportunity to say, climate change needs to be addressed. This is a great opportunity for the United States, just like you laid out, Mariana. We can be this, this can help us to actually achieve energy independence. We know that um, not just young Republicans, but all Republicans are excited about when you talk about clean energy and the idea of having clean energy. Um, but we want to do it differently. We're not going to do the Green New Deal. Look, we believe that markets and competition are great things. Mm -hmm. And we believe that these are part of what give us a great standard of living. And we think they can be harnessed to solve these problems and benefit our country. And we're different than the Democrats because we're not saying that we should you know, have jobs guarantees. We're not saying that we should use the Green New Deal as a foil lay out this vision, but say, here are big policies. You know, I think a lot of the policies, frankly, when it comes down to it, they're just gonna put people to sleep and kind of snoozers. That's great, that's exciting. You know, like talking about things like, how are you gonna get our electricity supply to 80% clean energy by a certain target and then to 100%, like let everyone be bored by that, fine. <laughs> but I think the keys are just to say, look at, I'm, I'm approaching this. I've got a whole suite of policies, but they're all premised on the idea that markets are important, that we want to use these forces to our advantage, we shouldn't just set them aside, we shouldn't just ignore them. And in my mind, that's you know, the real difference between kind of a, a Republican approach and a Democratic approach. Um, but I'm still waiting for that call from John Curtis, so. I would say, you know what, pick up the phone, David. Don't, he, he might not call you, and I don't think it's not because you have great ideas, but until we start putting pressure on the elected officials to pay attention and do something and really turn up the heat on them, it's just going to be more lip service. And I mean, again, to your point, policy, I've said, if I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times, policy is not sexy, but policy is what changes the direction of our nation. And unfortunately, there are some Republicans who aren't wanting to get out there and do the governing and the policy side of things, right? They want to do the, you know, the grandstanding, the Fox News interviews, the MSNBC interviews, they want to stay above the folds and they want to stay on air. But you know what? Politicians weren't meant to be celebrities. They were meant to get things done and do it in the interest of the constituents, which are the American people. And there's the time now. And the more people that stand up, that call the offices, that write in, that email, that tweet them, that do all of the things to get their attention, eventually something will happen, right? It's the old adage of the Jewish story of um, something will happen. Either the landlord will die or the dog will. And it's just a matter of where do you want to be in that moment? 
Touche, good point. Um, you know, just one observation as we were going about this conversation. I think it is exciting. And I guess what we haven't seen is, is skilled political leaders who can who recognize this and figure out how to craft that coalition. But you talked about strategic voters. I mean, so many issues that we're facing on climate, and I mentioned this to you a little bit before we, we started the call, um, are similar to issues we face here in this state, for example, on air quality. We have some major air pollution problems, um, particularly in the winter here. And people often ask me, you know, why is it that we aren't taking action? And having seen it firsthand and been up at the legislature and worked in, in this space for a while, my answer is kind of boring, but I think it's the truth. It's like poli-sci 101. There are entities here in our state that benefit from us not doing anything about uh, dirty air. Same thing in the national sense. There are entities that benefit from inaction, mm -hmm. even though the rest of us hurt and you know we, we aren't organized. And, and there clearly are messages that could break through to both Republicans and Democrats about those opportunities from clean energy, about a better path forward, you know, clean air that comes along with this, not facing fluctuating gas prices at the pump because you plug your car in every night and your mm -hmm. electricity bill is stable. Um, there, there is a coalition out there and I think it's instead of seeing you know, viewing it in that way that gives me some uh, hope on this mm -hmm. front rather than, you know, the, the partisanship that's out there these days. I would agree. I think exactly what you're outlining, it gives me a lot of hope. I'm extremely hopeful for the future. I don't, I'm not a pessimist in the least. I think that, you know, at this point, there's a lot of opportunity and I think that's fantastic. And now we have to act. And the way that we do that is by bringing everybody together and putting pressure on. Okay. Well, Mariana, do you, anything we didn't cover, any last points uh, you want to make before we sign off? I think we've covered a breadth of topics. This has been fantastic. And I just want to say thank you so much, David. This has been wonderful. And I'm so grateful for everyone that has listened in and tuned in to us. And I'm just very excited to be here. And as always, I'm a huge advocate for Republican EN and finding solutions to the ongoing climate crisis. If people want to learn a little bit more about Republican EN, or these efforts to get to engage conservatives and Republicans on climate, um, where how can they get involved? Where should they go? So I would encourage them to they can follow us on Twitter, or they can also um, check out the website for Republican Republic EN, and it's Republican, but instead of it having an A, it has an E. <laughs> Um, and it's just such a fantastic organization and the web address is republicen.org and I would encourage people to head over to their website and check it out. Okay, well, Mariana, I can't thank you enough. This is really enjoyable. Um, love that coordinated bookshelf behind you, color coordinated bookshelf. Thanks for joining us here. For those tuning in that want to learn more about O2Utah and what we're doing, we've got a website, o2utah.org, and we're on the socials. Can check us out there. Um, thank you so much for tuning in and until next time, farewell.